Hey, everybody. My name's Alex Moore. I've been on staff with Veritas for about two years now. Um, yeah, cool. Oh, yep. Uh, I went to school here at Mizzou. Uh, was in a sorority here. Became a Christian through Veritas around my sophomore year. So this is a really special place for me. Um, and I met my husband, Daniel, here. We've been married a little over two years. Um, and we got our Pride and Joy Stanley last summer. Um, yeah, there should be a few picks. I wanted more, but Lily only let me have three. Um, his full name is Stanley Tucci Yelnats Moore. Um, we're a bit obsessed with him, but he's been so fun. Uh, we love him a lot. He's at home right now. He wishes he could be here. Um, anyways, that's who I am now, kind of in a nutshell. Most of you guys in here might not know me well. Um, and the ones that do probably don't know who I was in high school, thankfully. Um, I'm not exactly proud of it. So senior year of high school, I was part of a friend group that was self-titled SGN, Senior Girl Nation. Um, and let's just say SGN was not the nicest group of girls ever. Uh, we were pretty much jersey chasers, partiers, the cool girls, according to us. Um, Despite my SGN membership and identity, I was also way low-key into theater and musical theater at that. Um, no offense to any theater kids in the room. I'm sure there are some of them. I love theater. Um, but at my high school, the popular senior girls and the theater kids didn't exactly mix. Um, so in order to control and manipulate both situations, I got really good at hiding my theater self from my SGN self and my SGN self from my theater self. Um, it got so intense that I would go as far as hosting cast parties at my parents' house on Friday nights and lying to my SGN friends about what I was doing and then lying to my theater friends about how I wasn't at the football party Saturday nights. Yeah, it was rough. It all came to culmination for me, though, the night of my senior prom, and all of SGN was taking athletes, and I had some babe sauce baseball boy as my date, and my hair was kind of like up to here, and I thought I was like the bomb. Um, and once we were kind of at the end of the night at prom, I was kind of sneakily off dancing with my theater friends, because they were awesome. And my date was ready to go to the after party, and so I was not ready to go yet, so I stayed back. And my prom after party ended up being a Lion King watch party with two of my theater friends. Um, yeah, so when I told my friend that story the other day, she laughed and said, I think you just told me the plot of High School Musical. And I, as weird as that is, I think that was actually my dilemma. So I don't tell that story as a cutesy, know who your true friends are, because my senior year, the friends weren't the problem at all. They were expecting me to be who I led them to believe I was, which was a muted, half-hearted, false version of myself. I tell that story to say that I was robbing myself of authentic friendship vulnerability by hiding parts of myself to achieve some sort of gain from the friends that I had. I tell that story because as seemingly insignificant as it seems now, those types of feelings I don't think are far off. I think if we're honest, we all desperately want to be truly known and accepted, but we are too afraid to let others see us. We're afraid that the approval and belonging that we need will be taken away or not given in the first place if we let people see all of who we truly are. We are terrified of the possible rejection that comes from being known. Even leading up to this talk, and as I speak now, there is fear that comes from the possible judgment from all of you as I share stories of my life. How are we all doing this today, though? How do we hide parts of ourselves so that people only see what we want them to? The most expected and probably most obvious way we can see this is through Instagram, and maybe even Finstagram. This idea that we're all trying to curate a specific image that we want others to recognize us as. And we need even maybe a separate profile to showcase what our Saturday nights actually look like. 
or to show the goofy side that we don't want just anyone seeing. Even without a separate Finstagram account, our Instagrams are a way to show everyone the perfected version of ourselves. And trust me, I'm not above this. Last summer, I was involved in a conversation with a few women. Um, and at the beginning, I was kind of just listening, not saying much. And then when I felt like I had a comment to share, I started to. And one of, as soon as I started talking, one of the women said, whoa, 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 we all know your life is perfect. So I don't know what you have to say in this conversation. Obviously, the second she said that, I could feel my stomach drop. Um, and aside from the pain that her assumptions or our assumptions of people can cause, what really came out of that call out for me was a conviction that somehow this woman at my church, who didn't know me, so she only knew my Instagram, thought my life was perfect. And honestly, I probably wanted it that way. I probably, because what would she think if she knew what my life really was? What I'm not saying is that any and all Instagrams and Finstagrams are wrong and hurtful. But I am saying that the premise of it points to the cultural norm with lax vulnerability. It completely robbed us of any intimacy or either one of us feeling like we could really know each other. Instagram is not the enemy. Our hearts are tempted to hide and create a perfectly curated image of ourselves because we are scared to be known. How else do we hide parts of ourselves in relationships? Maybe humor. A lot of people like to be funny because it takes a focus off themselves, right? If and when we poke fun at other people or always talk about silly topics, it diverts attention away from us or self-deprecating humor, or sarcasm. We become known from our friends about our shortcomings, um, become the butt of the jokes instead of coming alongside one another in our weaknesses. We make fun of each other. And sure, it's all in good spirits, but is it always? It can make it easy to hide our insecurities or not speak out about real struggle or pain when our friends have already labeled us a certain way. What about busyness? We try to fill up our schedule so that when people see us, they focus on what we do rather than who we are or what we might struggle with. Or friend groups, maybe like me in high school, we are tempted to keep our Veritas friends separate from our Greek life friends. Or our high school friends from our college friends, because those people know two very different sides of us. Maybe it's our MSA friends from our church friends, or our Jamaica people from our roommates. Or maybe we just don't know how to share with others. Maybe that doesn't come easy for some of us. Or that we've been taught vulnerability is weakness. Or maybe our family growing up never act, actually asked us any real questions. We all want to be known, but we are terrified of that actually happening. But where does this longing to be accepted and belong really come from? After the creation story, in the very beginning of Genesis, where God creates the world, plants, animals, Adam, and calls it all good. Like we're talking perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden, good. No pain or sorrow or any distance with God. Perfect harmony. Even in this, God feels the need to say something is not good. What is it that he says isn't good? For Adam, the human being, made in the image of God to be alone. So he creates Eve as a complement to Adam where Adam lacks, or to play a role that Adam can't perfectly play alone. This is our first picture of community and the truth that God created us for each other and to be with others. Of course, Adam and Eve are the first picture of marriage in the Bible, but we're not talking about marriage here. There are many people in the scriptures who are completely whole. Jesus, Paul, the list goes on and on, who are single their entire lives, but who are in community with other people the way God intends. God himself even exists within community of the Trinity, of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in perfect relationship. A pastor from Nashville, Scott Sauls, explains it this way. To be vitally connected to God, it makes no sense to be disconnected from relationships with others who are made in his image. 
From the earliest points in the Bible, we are seeing the same theme we're going to be talking about tonight in 1 Samuel. I am so excited that tonight we're going to be looking at the friendship of Jonathan and David as an example of what type of relationship God is calling us to be as image bearers. We pick it up in chapter 18, but before we do, let's pray. Dear Jesus, just thank you for bringing all these students here tonight, and I pray that you would be preparing our hearts and our minds to hear from you. I pray that you would speak through me. I pray that you would speak through your word. I pray that you'd be here tonight. Help us to love you more. It's in your name, I pray. Amen. Okay, so 1 Samuel 18, 1 through 5. As soon as he, which is David, had finished speaking to Saul, who's the king we've been talking about this whole series, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant. So we've heard what this word covenant means. Maybe not. Maybe we're still confused. Basically what we're talking about is like a really committed friendship. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Okay, so context. This is right after the David-Goliath battle, which we learned last week from Kyle. Um, and all of a sudden, this David guy, who is the son of a shepherd, not from wealth or royalty, is the most popular guy in town because he defeated this giant Goliath. So now King Saul wants to take interest in David because he defeated Goliath. He's basically all over him. Quick backstory to this is just before he went and fought Goliath, David, he had been anointed king in secret by God because Saul had not lived up to his call, like when Dirks talked about Saul. So Saul is technically still king here, but so David is in a waiting period, as we're seeing. Jonathan is Saul's son, who under normal circumstances was next in line for the throne or kingship. And as we unpack this passage and see what God is trying to show us in his plan for friendships, we are going to be looking at three specific qualities of friendship in David and Jonathan. Commitment, cost, and character shaping. And the first quality is commitment. So we all desperately want to be known, but are afraid to be seen. For vulnerability and friendship to be possible, there needs to be commitment. For vulnerability and friendship to be possible, there needs to be commitment. Let me tell you guys, I know this is not easy. This level of intimacy contradicts our instincts to hide and control what we show others. We so deeply crave intimacy, but at the time, the same time, we are terrified of it. Verse 1 says that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. These are not temporary words, guys. These are words describing the real deal kind of friendship, the kind where we share their, they share their dreams, sins, fears, hopes, weaknesses. These kinds of friendships are about letting ourselves be known and being committed to know the other person. Why is it so hard to do this? Our culture wants to tell us that as soon as things get messy or scary, we got to get out. It's a backwards way of thinking to the world to be in a relationship that is not dependent on circumstances. Tim Keller speaks about two types of relationships. On one hand, there's the consumer-oriented relationship that says, how can I benefit from what this person gives me? Or what can I get out of this relationship, essentially? On the other hand, there is a commitment-oriented relationship that says, how can I prioritize the good of this other person? David and Jonathan entered a committed friendship with each other. The language used here is implying that these two men are now like family. Later in 1 Samuel, 
Saul is plotting to kill David out of hatred and jealousy because he finds out that David will be taking over as king. Jonathan, who's Saul's son, like we said, is interceding on his friend's behalf. And in one of their last meetings in 1 Samuel 20, he says, Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Okay, spoiler alert. In the first chapter of 2 Samuel, David finds out that Jonathan was killed in battle and mourns and laments the loss of his dear brother. But the most beautiful piece of this commitment to me is in 2 Samuel 9, where David summons Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was crippled and disabled. So we pick it up at verse 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage, which basically just means showing public respect. And David said, Mephibosheth, and he answered, Behold, I am your servant. So in this culture, disabled people were disregarded, unseen, undignified, especially by royalty. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan, and I will restore you all the land of Saul your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? So here we see that commitment come to life. David says to Jonathan's son, Because of my love for your father, you will always have a place at my table. David gives dignity to the lowly and pays him respect on behalf of his commitment with Jonathan and with God. God did not create friendship as a disposable thing. These kinds of bonds transcend convenience, compatibility, and even life and death. So what would it look like if we had this kind of commitment in our friendships? Are we willing to stick with people, or if we're honest with ourselves, do we want to follow the internal reflex that wants to hit the eject button when things get tough? Are we the type of people interested in consumer-based relationships, or are we willing to enter into the messiness of a commitment-based friendship? I just want to say this. I know some of you have been going through some really tough things relationally, maybe even with people in this room. On the whole, I want to challenge us to be the kind of friends who err on the side of commitment. But what I don't want to say is that there's never a time to leave a friendship. I'd be happy to talk with anyone personally about that because I know all circumstances are different. But my point here is that David and Jonathan are inviting us to examine why it is that we shy away from this type of commitment. So the first thing we saw through David and Jonathan's friendship is that there's a level of commitment required in friendships. The second quality we see is that relationships are going to cost us something. This quality of cost and sacrifice was the loudest and most convicting to me while studying David and Jonathan's relationship. What we're seeing here in verse 4, when Jonathan's giving David his robe, armor, sword, bow, and belt, Jonathan is literally surrendering his rights to the throne, to David. As Jonathan's son, Jonathan has always been the heir to the throne, the next in line to be king. But in light of God's plan, Jonathan knows that it's actually David who will be called to be king and not himself. Okay, but let's think about this. If you have spent your whole life in expectation of becoming king or queen of God's great nation, and in a strange turn of events, some rando comes out of nowhere and is now all of a sudden called by God to be king instead of you. Let's just say I don't think a committed friendship would be my first step with this person. But not only does Jonathan enter into a friendship with David, he humbly and willingly surrenders his goals and dreams and expectations of his future for God's plan for David's life. While Jonathan is a total baller, we can't get around that. I don't think the point is that we're to draw out is just how awesome of a dude Jonathan is, although I literally love him. 
I think what we need to see is the heart posture that David and Jonathan have in their relationship. Jonathan is willing to see past his own desires and what he can get out of the friendship for the sake of God's bigger plan. While Jonathan's cost seems bigger here, and it might be, David is also willing to set aside his plans and aspirations. David is stepping into a role of submission to God's call for him to become king. And from this, Saul sets out to kill him, so David does not have an easy road ahead of him. But the two men together are pursuing faithfulness to God above their personal plans. But Jonathan isn't sacrificing his future just for David here. He is driven to sacrifice his plan because of his faith in God's greater story. Jonathan is willing to see past his own desires and what he can get out of the friendship for the sake of his hope in God. Even after Jonathan gives up his throne, Saul tries to kill David like a million times. The person who would have benefited most from Saul killing David is who? Jonathan. He could have the throne again. He wouldn't have to sacrifice. But no. Jonathan protected David by pleading with his father about Saul's plan for God's death. And when that didn't work, he warned David about Saul's plan for his death so that he could escape. Imagine how much courage it must have taken for Jonathan to plead with his father, who also happened to be the king of Israel, on David's behalf. That's the kind of commitment David and Jonathan had as friends. The person who could have benefited most from David's death is the one who tries to save him. Jonathan's obedience to God comes before his personal gain in this friendship. A recent example of this was a few years ago when one of our fellow staff members, Justin, got in a pretty serious car accident when he was in college. He was T-boned on the highway. I think there's pictures of that, yeah, scary. He's not from here, so he couldn't have called any family, so his first call was his close Christian friend, Jared. Without skipping a beat, Jared dropped everything and drove over an hour to meet Justin at the scene of the accident, waited about 30 minutes for everything to kind of finish up, and then proceeded to drive him to the hospital and stay with him for over three hours that night until everything got cleared up. He ended up unexpectedly giving up his entire Saturday night to support and care for Justin. Jared's faith in God helped him to understand the sacrifice and cost required in friendships. And it may not always be 50-50 in relationships. We can see that with Jonathan and David. There are going to be seasons in your friendships where you are going to have to be the one giving more, sacrificing more, losing more for the sake of the other person. And it doesn't have to. If you want to be a person who is just in friendships for your own gain, it's not going to cost you much. But if we want to be in the kind of friendships God is calling us to, we need to be willing to sacrifice ourselves. When we expect relationships to be 50-50, we are utilizing our friends for our own gain. We're not friends with them for their sake. We're friends with them for our sake. We're not loving them. We're loving ourselves. So what does the cost of friendship look like for us? Maybe it costs you your energy, helping roommates, cleaning up without expecting the other person to do the same or them even knowing that it was you who did it. Maybe it costs you your time. If a friend is going through something, maybe listening more than you get to share. Spending a weekend just being with that friend instead of getting as much homework done as you expected. Maybe it costs you your comfort. Continuing to ask that tough friend to hang out even if they aren't the easiest for us at the moment. Their life isn't as uplifting to you, maybe. Or maybe the discomfort that can come when you actually have to say hard things to each other. Or do we only want friendships that build us up, our ego, but don't actually tell us where we're wrong out of love? Are we in friendships to consume and use people? Or are we in friendships to serve and sacrifice for their good above our own? 
We've talked through David and Jonathan's commitment, the cost of their friendship, and now our third quality is that the kind of friendships God is calling us to are shaping our character. Something that is incredibly unique about Christianity, and maybe you're here as a Christian or maybe you're here as someone who's still unsure about this whole Jesus Christianity thing, but Christianity, more than any other movement, has brought people with differences together, whether that's culturally, racially, socioeconomically, politically, or maybe even just personality differences. Whatever it is, there is a commonality under one God and the gospel amidst vast differences. Let's think about that even in the context with David and Jonathan. In any other context, David and Jonathan should not have been friends. Jonathan is a prince. He's the son of a king. He's a soldier. He comes from a wealthy background and clearly a very powerful family. David, on the other hand, is the son of a shepherd from the middle of nowhere Bethlehem with very little to bring to the table, so to speak. In a less dramatic but somewhat similar way, my sophomore year of college, I started to lead a Veritas small group, which was terrifying because I felt like such a mess. But I was placed with a co-leader named Paige. And let's just say Paige and I were not a match made in heaven. We were pretty much polar opposites. She's brilliant, wise, well-spoken, distinguished, super posh, introverted, been a Christian for a few years, well-versed in the Bible. And I was over here all over the place, just became a Christian the summer before, had a party girl reputation, overly extroverted, didn't know my Bible, and nothing. And not only did Paige and I not understand each other, we probably didn't want anything to do with each other. I think even staff was a bit nervous putting us together. What's funny is, as God grew me that year, and I recognized my need for Christian friends, and God had placed Paige in a pretty specific role in my life, having to hang out once a week and all for a small group. So slowly but surely, I just kept showing up to our small group earlier and earlier to hang out with her as we learned to teach the Bible, as we learned from each other's strengths and covered each other's weaknesses. God grew a friendship from two people who should have never been friends. To this day, Paige is my best friend. She is my bridesmaid. We hang out all the time. And of course, I love that story. And I'd love to tie a pretty bow around it and say that our friendship is butterflies and roses because we're both Christians. But that would be far from the truth. And in light of our differences, we have to work that much harder to care for each other. Scott Sauls, when talking about this idea, says, Do you want to position yourself to grow? Bring people who aren't like you into your circle. Our character is shaped by the friendships we have. This scripture paints a clear picture of the character quality David and Jonathan possess as individuals. Throughout 1 Samuel, we don't see any signs that Jonathan had any resentment towards David, even after his sacrifice of the throne. Like we talked about before, Jonathan went to great lengths to make sure David could reach the potentials God had set before him. Back to our passage, after Jonathan gave David his robes and armor and all the royal adornments of his verse, of his, <laughs> verse 5 says, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. To me, this implies that Jonathan set David up for success. I love the idea of us leaving our friends better than how we found them. But do our friendships always look like this? Is it easy to deal with people who are different from us? How do we typically think of that outspoken friend whose political opinions are the exact opposite of yours? How do we view that sweet mate or sorority sister whose communication style is always rubbing you the wrong way? How can we be sensitive to that friend whose racial background is one that you don't understand? Maybe you hear all those questions and it's easy to glaze over them, but maybe the reality is that you don't have any friends who are different from you. Why not? David wasn't like Jonathan, and Jonathan wasn't like David. 
God is calling us to relationships that shake, shape our character outside of our norm. How is bridging these gaps in our hearts even possible? In the New Testament book of Hebrews, a verse we see in chapter 10, it says, let us spur on one another toward love and good deeds. Let's think about this. What is the function of the spur? It's to get the horse to operate at 100% instead of at 50% in the race. It's irritating. It's discomforting. It draws attention where we are wanting to skate by. But think about how life-giving this is. A German pastor once said, in Christian community, only God knows the real state of our fellowship. What may appear weak and trifling to us may be great and glorious to God. What may appear weak and trifling to us, a friend with annoying political beliefs, a friend who doesn't share your socioeconomic background, maybe in a way that makes you uncomfortable, a personality that just isn't naturally attractive to you. That may be a great and glorious gift from God to spur you on to 100% obedience. So all this sounds great and beautiful, right? Commitment, cost, character shaping, but is it realistic? Can we actually be part of friendships like this? How is it possible for us sinful, finite people to live out God's design for relationships? It depends on what we believe, and it depends on who we believe. C.S. Lewis says, Love anything, and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. The only place outside of heaven where we can be perfectly safe from all the dangers of love is hell. As the music team comes back up, I just kind of want to say that love is costly, it's dangerous, it's inconvenient, and it's terrifying. We all desperately want to be known, but we are terrified of being seen. What gives us the courage to take this step and let our walls down and let people really see us? What gives us the desire to commit to a friendship with no guarantee of getting something in return? What gives us the humility to make sacrifices for people that come at a cost to ourselves? How do we reach across the table and enter relationships that shape our character? We've got to know that this has already been done for us. Jesus has an unshakable commitment to his people, not only when we love him back, but especially when we are at our worst. He has seen every side of us that we want to hide from people. Jesus has been there in every moment where we've been shamed into faking it. Jesus has, is the only person who has seen it all, has been rejected far worse than we could even fear, and not only accepts us, but chooses us. Not only sees us, but fully pursues us when we hide. Who not only sacrifices for our good, but paid the ultimate price. A price that we could never repay, and better yet, he doesn't expect us to. His death for our sins, so that he can have a relationship with us. He looks past our weakness and our shortcomings and gives us an eternal seat at his table in his royal family. Jesus has clothed us with his royal garments and Jesus knits us to his own soul. When we understand this, when we understand who Jesus really is, when we put our hope and faith in him, we are freed to show ourselves fully to people. We are freed to sacrifice for others because what do we have to lose? The only person whose approval matters in all of eternity has chosen you. So we can live out of that into the kind of friendships God created us for. Amen.